Please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Begin our study in the Church of Corinth this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. My favorite uh, river rafting trip was a trip I took uh, many years ago with my dad and with my cousins. Uh, we had a family reunion. We went out on the river. And um, I, I just I want to uh, acknowledge from the outset, particularly for those of you who are sitting close to the front, I, you can probably you can see the mustache. So I want to acknowledge that I had a mustache, but you need to know in that day, that mustache was killer. I mean, my wife, she fell in love with me with that mustache, kind of a Tom Selleck sort of thing if you're from my generation. So I don't want you to be distracted by that. I want you to notice the location of our guide, right? He's, he's in the back of the raft and he's actually exiting at this moment. Literally, literally he came out of the raft. First time and only time I've ever had that happen where our, we actually lost our guide. And what was interesting is he, I mean, he was a, a very good guide. He'd been on this river many years. He was very experienced He'd never been thrown from his own raft before. And when he left, you know, we had a terrible time trying to get back to him. And he had a hard time trying to get back to us because the river was very high that year. Currents were very powerful, very strong. Even though he was a a great guide and a very strong swimmer, we, we had a difficult time getting reconnected because of the current. And what I've discovered through the years is there are a lot of life lessons that you can find in nature. And be, be careful of strong currents. They can sweep you along. They can pull you under. You're not careful. Strong current can end your life. The culture in which we live is a raging, dangerous current. And for many of us, we have grown so accustomed to it that we are comfortable in it. We don't really realize that we are being swept along. We don't understand that the culture around us is deeply influenced by our adversary, the devil, and all that he wants, all that he desires is to pull us under, sweep us along, destroy our lives. And we need to wake up and we need to pay attention. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, you're a student or not a student, married, single, male or female. The intention of the design of the culture around you is to destroy your life. You need to wake up. This year we're going to study the, the church in Corinth. Corinth was a church that was being swept along by the culture. They were the body of Christ. They belonged to Jesus. They had been purchased by his blood, but they really didn't look that much different from the culture surrounding them. And so we're going to try to draw some lessons for us as the church, as the people of God. How should we live? How should we be different in the midst of a culture that on its best days ignores God, on its worst days hates God? How do we live as the church in the midst of that culture? Let's begin 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible to entirely separate ourselves from culture, isn't it? I mean, you're a physical being. You live in a place. You live in a culture. I remember when I first moved down to Texas from the Northeast and my friends all said, you know, pretty soon you're going to, you're going to talk like a Southerner. You're going to talk like a Texan. I said, 
no, I'm not. And I resisted, I resisted, I resisted, you know, and then I went back and I saw some of my friends and they said, no, no, you know, you, you sound just like a Texan. I said, no, no, y'all, I don't. <laughs> howdy, howdy. No, I don't. No, no, you know, I mean, I, I didn't even know that it had happened. I just absorbed it without even noticing or thinking. And now I own it, right? I wasn't born here, but I'm a Texan. It's my culture. It's impossible to separate yourself from culture. When you first meet somebody, what's one of the first questions you ask? Where are you from? Where are you from? The Corinthian Christians, they they couldn't completely separate themselves from culture, but they had become absorbed, really, by the culture. So much Corinthian culture had gotten into them, and it was not a healthy culture at all. I want to give you four characteristics or traits of the values of the culture in Corinth. So as we study this book, you'll get a sense of what these people were living in. So four values of the Corinthian culture. The first, religious pluralism alone was valid. Religious pluralism alone was valid. And perhaps some of you already see the internal contradiction in that statement. Pluralism alone. This was a, a highly pagan culture. It was highly idolatrous culture. They worshipped all kinds of gods. This picture is taken from the temple of Apollo and it is looking up at the Acrocorinth on top of which is the temple of Aphrodite. But they had all kinds of other gods. Let me give you just a few of the gods that they worshipped. Athena and Isis, Serapis, Hermes, Jupiter, Zeus, Fortuna, were among the most prominent. But according to one transcription that was discovered, a man said, I pray to all of the gods. I cover all of my bases. They were also heavily influenced by the emperor cult, emperor worship. Remember, Corinth is is in Greece. It's in Achaia. But it was a Roman colony. And so they prided themselves as a Roman colony on being thoroughly entrenched in the worship of the emperor. Every year, the emperor's Birthday would be celebrated, and there would be a procession that would move through the city, and the people would exit their front doors, and they'd make a sacrifice right there on their front porch. There were actually altars everywhere throughout the city and in the hills. Your front porch could be an altar. Everything in their culture was dedicated to a a god. So buildings were dedicated to gods, uh, government offices, civic ceremonies, religious ceremonies, holidays, Even every slab of meat in the marketplace, dedicated to a God. And then Christians and Jews came along, and they worshipped one God. They said, no, we are are monotheistic. We believe that God is one. We worship just one God, and there actually are no other gods that are true and valid, just one God. And so Christians and Jews were actually labeled as atheists. Because they didn't believe in many gods, they just believed in one God. They were labeled as haters of mankind because the worship of the gods was understood to to keep uh, civic order and to create prosperity for the people, particularly the worship of the emperor who had divinity in him. And if he was worshiped properly, he could govern consistently with that divinity and could create peace and prosperity and tranquility. And so to not worship the gods was an offense against civic order and prosperity. For the Jews, they were largely tolerated because they didn't try to convert anybody to Judaism. But when Christians came in and they said, no, there's just one God and there's only one way. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Only life comes through Jesus. 
And that raised a lot of suspicion and eventually a lot of persecution. Because the only position that was acceptable was that everything was acceptable. But if you said not everything is acceptable, only one thing is acceptable, that's the one thing that's not acceptable. Get it? Does it sound familiar? Our, our culture did not invent pluralism. And religious pluralism was a dominant feature of the day. Second, wealth always won. A very pagan society, a very materialistic society, uh, a very wealthy society, very stratified. A few rich, a lot of poor. city of uh, Corinth, the ancient city, is in ruins today. Uh, part of it has been excavated. Uh, other parts of it are actually now under homes and under fields and hills. Uh, the city itself was destroyed in 146 B.C. by Rome, but then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar because it is in such a strategic place economically. This is, this is the best real estate in the ancient world. The reason for that is because uh, it actually had a, a port to the north and to the south. Okay? So to the north, there is the port of Lachium, and to the south, Cancray. And Corinth is right in between. So two port cities, they've got the wealth coming from the east and from the west, uh, goods that would, and, and money and uh, produce that would travel from uh, Asia to Rome and Rome to Asia. The vast majority of it went through the city of Corinth. So if you wanted to make wealth quickly, Corinth was a place to go. And travel around this cape was actually exceedingly dangerous. So in 600 B.C., the Corinthians built a road that went across the Isthmus. This is a picture of the rebuilt road. This is not the one from 600 B.C. This is the road that the Romans rebuilt in order to transport uh, not just goods, but actually they would load up the entire ship and they would haul it across the Isthmus. A very wealthy culture, at least for some, an opportunity to move out of poverty into wealth quickly. You want to make a fortune, you want to get rich quick, come to Corinth. Very materialistic society. It was, in a sense, the Panama Canal of the day. There's actually now a canal that cuts across the isthmus. So originally they just transported the goods across the land. Now they've actually cut a canal through the isthmus to avoid that hazardous journey. No, religious pluralism. Alone was valid. Second, wealth always won. Third, personal pleasure was not to be denied. It was a very, very hedonistic culture. Not surprising, right? You have two ports. Port cities tend to be uh, relatively immoral places. In that day, all the major cities were pretty immoral, but Corinth in particular had a long history of immorality. So if you read the ancient Greek literature, a Corinthian girl became a euphemism for one who was a prostitute. The city of Corinth became a euphemism for hedonism and immorality. According to one legend, the temple of Aphrodite actually owned a thousand prostitutes. So sailors would come to Corinth and they would squander their wealth. They would squander their wealth. This brought about the Proverbs from Strabo. He said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It's a risky thing to do. Or as Paul would say, rhetorically, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, hey, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah, but he is using it sarcastically. He's saying, if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after this, well, then, of course, we should live for this life. But there is a resurrection, 
But you Corinthians are living as if there's not a resurrection. You are living just for the day. You're living exactly like the culture around you. Wake up. Fourth, individual value was derived from status. This is what we might describe as a a shame-honor culture. All that mattered was who you know. And anything could be sacrificed in your life in order to ascend that ladder of status. Personal integrity, religious conviction, even relationships. People had value insofar as they were able to increase your status. Somebody could increase your status, you'd, you'd bribe them, you would ingratiate yourself to them, you'd fawn over them, you'd pursue them. If someone could do nothing for you, you would ignore them. If someone damaged your status, you might need to destroy them. So it's a culture that is it's highly political. There is gossip. There is uh, intrigue. There is materialism and immorality. In other words, this is a really, really, really difficult place to be a Christian. However, as Gordon Fee wrote, he, was, uh, he wrote probably the best commentary on 1 Corinthians. He made this comment. He said, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. Hey, the church is where the church is, right? Here we are. We, we need to be someplace. The problem was not that the church was in Corinth. The problem was that so much of Corinth had gotten into the church. So they were living just like the world. There was nothing that differentiated them from the culture around them. And Paul heard about this. Right? He started getting uh, letters coming, giving him reports about what was happening in the church of Corinth. He had visitors come and reporting, this is what is happening in the church. You see, the church was populated by, by a, a few rich, but, but mostly poor, and they were becoming more and more segregated. And there were a few Jews, but mostly Gentiles, And they were becoming segregated and there was constant conflict and bickering and infighting. And they were, in a sense, just using the church as one more arena in which they could climb another social ladder. And Paul heard about this and he wrote to address this. Remember, Paul knew this church very well. Paul planted the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 describes it. Paul was coming from Athens. And at that point in time, Athens was in the shadow of Corinth. Corinth was the major city in Achaia. And so Paul leaves Athens and he comes to Corinth. When he arrived at Corinth, he met two Jews, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They were Jews who had lived in Rome. They'd been expelled by Claudius, the emperor, in one of his persecutions. So they came to Corinth and they began to set up shop making tents. Because the economy was thriving down there. Paul, being a tent maker, joined in with them, started making tents with them. And then some of his friends arrived in Corinth and they began to provide for Paul's financial needs. So Paul said, okay, well, let me set aside tent making and let me preach the gospel. He went first to the synagogue because that was his pattern. He'd go to the Jews first. So he arrived in the synagogue. He presented Jesus as the son of God, God's Messiah, who had died and been raised from the dead, resurrection. And the Jews threw him out. They rejected the message of the gospel. So Paul said, okay. Let me shake out my robes. Let me wipe the dust from the soles of my feet. You're in the hands of God. And he took his message and went to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles heard it and they responded eagerly. And many, many people believed in the gospel there. And so God came to Paul and said, Paul, you usually move from place to place to place. I want you just to stay put. Stay right where you are. Because I have many people in this city. So for 18 months, Paul preached and he taught. 
And many came to faith in Jesus Christ. Mostly Gentiles, but some Jews. And it created such an uproar that those Jews became angry and jealous and they grabbed Paul and they drug him in front of the proconsul, Gallio, in front of the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And they began making accusations against Paul. And Gallio's listening to this and he said, you know, that, that just sounds to me like an, an argument amongst Jews about your theology. I, I don't have anything to do with that. And he, he released Paul. And so Paul went free, but the Jews were so angry, they took the leader of the synagogue and they beat him. <laughs> they beat him unconscious right in front of Gallio. And we don't know exactly why they beat him. It may be that so many Jews had begun to trust Christ, or it may be more likely that the leader of the synagogue himself had trusted in Christ. So Paul established a church, and he left the church, a a growing, thriving church. And then after he moved on, he heard that this church was struggling and struggling deeply. They were becoming caught up in the culture and no longer looking distinct. They weren't looking like the people of God any longer. And so he wrote to them. He actually wrote them uh, three letters. One of the letters is lost. And the basic theme in each of the letters was this. Go against the flow of culture. Do not get caught up in the flow of culture. For two reasons. First, Because you belong to God. You are different, so be different. You've been purchased for God with the blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to God. You you, you are different people. Now live consistent with who you are. Second, because you are rich in Christ. You have all that you need in Jesus Christ. There is nothing this culture has to offer you. So don't grasp from the culture. But live differently and give to those around you. Go against the flow of culture. Sure, it's, it's always easier to go with the flow of culture, isn't it, men and women? It's always easier. But in the long run, it's destructive because God has called you out. Okay? Called you out for two reasons. First, because you belong to God. Second, because you're rich in Christ. I want you to read with me again, chapter 1 and verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, Jesus saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, two words that I want you to observe in this verse. Okay, first is called. Paul says God has called you. He has not called you to leave the city because then you can't influence the city. But he has called you out of the culture and to himself so that you can live in the city and influence the city. That's why God has called you. Do you remember right before Jesus departed and he prayed for his disciples? He prayed for us. This is what he prayed. John 17. He said, they, we, are not of the world, just as I, Jesus, am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I don't belong to this culture, just as they don't belong to this culture. This world is... And its culture is ultimately not their home. That's what Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers. God has called you out. He hasn't asked you to leave because then you can't influence people if you leave. But if you stay, and since you must stay, be different because you are different. Your identity has changed the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. So he says you're called. 
And you are actually saints by calling. Anybody uh, read the, ver- ber- uh, the book of First Corinthians recently? Ever? Anybody ever read the verse? <laughs> Great. Okay, good. That, that's encouraging. Um, you should read it. This week, read the whole book. Okay? Give you a sense of the flow of the book. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you, you may come back to chapter 1, verse 2, and say, what in the world was Paul thinking when he called them saints? Right? This is a, a, a seriously messed up church. All kinds of problems are being addressed in this church. And yet, Paul leads off with this. You are saints by calling. What could he possibly mean? Well, the word saint comes from a verb that means to be holy. A saint is literally a a holy one. He uses the verb actually previously, and he says you are sanctified. That is, you are set apart. And the confusion is that there are different aspects of sainthood or different aspects of sanctification or holiness, okay, all related Three different aspects. The first is positional, a positional sainthood or positional holiness. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul is saying, the moment you believed, your identity was changed. You were washed. Your sins are forgiven. You were sanctified, that is, you were set apart to God. You belong to him. You were justified, that is, you were declared righteous in the sight of God. That is who you are. Even when you don't behave like who you are, that is who you are. Okay, that's positional sanctification. There's also ultimate sanctification, also known as glorification. Someday we will be perfectly holy. We see God face to face and he glorifies us. That's a promise, it's a guarantee. For those of us who have believed, we are set apart positionally and we will be perfected with God for eternity. That is ultimate sanctification. Now, in the meantime, after we believe and until we're glorified, God is in this progressive process of making us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That is progressive sanctification. Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul says, look, since we have these promises, since we have been given the promise of eternal life, now let us cleanse ourselves. We've been called out of this culture. So cleanse yourself of these things that defile both, both your spirit and your body and move on in holiness. Become like who you are. Uh, this last week, I, I, walked into, uh, I walked into Starbucks, had my daughter with me, and walking in, I s- stood in line for a moment as I was standing there. Uh, one of the employees that I know, become friends with, he saw me standing there, and he just walked through the back of the area, grabbed a cup of coffee, filled it up, and handed me a cup of coffee free, which, that's like the sixth love language, right? <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you. I said, thank you. I go, thank you, man. I appreciate that. You're a saint. I did, literally. I said, you're a saint. And he turned back to me and he goes, no, I'm not. And, you know, I'm, I'm always open for a theological discussion. I'm like, well, let's talk about that for a sec, right? But he had a clipboard and he's working on stuff. So, you know, I wanted to download all this on my daughter, but she had to get to school. So I'll download it on you. Okay, I did. I'm thinking at that moment, I said, wait a second. I know this guy. He, he's, a, he's a believer. He's a Christian. And so he's wrong. 
There aren't some Christians who are saints and others who are not. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. God declared it of you. You have been set apart and you belong to God. You're a saint. What I think he was saying is, you know, in that whole progressive part of it, I'm maybe not doing so well, which I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. I don't know. In that sense, maybe he's not moving on. But he is a saint. Remember last year we were studying the book of Genesis and we came across this crazy character called Lot. Remember that? We're studying the life of Lot. Lot, who was just swept along in the current of his culture. He's living in Sodom. He's really not distinct from the people of Sodom. And we flipped over to one of Peter's letters and Peter describes him as righteous Lot. Do you remember that? Righteous Lot. <laughs> Peter, yeah, have, you not, have you not picked up Genesis recently? Right? How, how, what are you thinking? Righteous Lot? What's Peter talking about? Well, Lot had believed in Yahweh. He had believed in the one true God and he was justified or declared righteous by faith. He was a saint. He belonged to God. He was in right relationship with God, but he was absorbed in the culture. He didn't look anything different from the culture. He was not moving on. So God actually literally reached down and he pulled him out, called him out, and then destroyed that particular culture. Paul opens the letter and he says, Corinthians, saints. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he start by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, I got it all lined up, and I'm writing to you dirty, rotten, nasty Corinthian Christians. Sinners, that's who you are. Why does he call them saints instead of sinners? Because they are sinners. Hey, we're going to get into that in the next couple weeks. I think he's trying to influence their understanding of themselves. If he can shift their sense of personal identity, their behavior will follow. The problem is that they are identifying themselves too deeply with Corinth and not deeply enough with Jesus Christ and with Christ's people. But when our sense of identity changes, it influences how we view the entire world around us. If we see ourselves first as in Christ, it changes our perspective on everything and everyone around us. So I ask you, how do you identify yourself? How do you think of yourself? How do you think of yourself first? I've noticed for me, when I'm in different settings, I identify myself in different ways. Uh, sometimes I identify myself by my race. Uh, one time I was in a, a wedding and it was uh, a friend of mine, he's Chinese and his bride was Chinese and most of the guests were Chinese, but then there were two of us who were groomsmen who were white. Uh, the other guy was, he's about 6'7", I'm 6'1", so there were two white guys standing up, 6'1", 6'7", in the midst of this Chinese crowd, and I will tell you, normally I don't experience that because I'm in a predominantly white culture. I don't, I don't, I don't feel my race many times, okay, but I was in a setting in that moment where the first thing I thought about was, I'm different here. I thought of my race. That's how I was identifying myself. Sometimes I think of myself in terms of my nationality, particularly when I'm traveling overseas and I'm not being treated appropriately. I want to reach in my pocket and say, see my American passport, right? I have rights. I'm American. I think nationality. Uh, Sometimes I think in terms of, of my role, right? The jobs that I do, right? We ask people, 
where are you from and what do you do? Identity in our culture is so tied to your role, your job. Sometimes I identify myself by relationships. I am known uh, in this town many places as Trissy's husband. If you know my wife, you understand that. She cuts this really wide social path, and I just kind of walk behind. And so I'm known as Trissy's husband. I'll get introduced. Yeah, this is my husband. Oh, you're Trissy's husband. That's nice. And then sometimes they'll look at me and they'll go, do you go to Grace? (laughs) I'm not kidding. I get that all the time. And I go, yeah, I do. Most Sundays, I do. I go to Grace. Sometimes I'm identified as Anna Joy's father or Benjamin's father. The relationships around me define who I am. But fundamentally, and most importantly, I belong to Jesus Christ. And when I begin to see myself first and foremost as belonging to Jesus Christ, it changes my perspective on everything. I don't need the people around me to elevate my status. I don't need them to make me feel good about myself, to give me value. I don't need them. I can then enjoy the relationship without feeling a sense that I need to take something from me. Instead, I can give to them because all that I need, I have in my identity in Jesus Christ. Okay, I am rich in Christ. And that's Paul's point, okay? Go against the flow of culture. First, Because you belong to God. You are different, so be different. Second, you are rich in Christ. All that you need for a full and satisfying life right now, you have in Jesus Christ. Read with me verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 4 again. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you, In Christ Jesus. We talked about grace last week. We reminded ourselves that grace is the absolute most powerful and transforming truth that exists in the universe. It is the truth that God loves you just as you are. That he has removed the debt of your sin in Jesus Christ. That the moment you believe that removal of debt is applied to you and you have life that lasts forever. Because you deserve it? No. Because you're worthy? No. Because you're better than others? No. But because God is love. And so God reaches out to you in grace. That is, grace takes initiative. It chases you down. And God says, in Jesus Christ, you can have all of my riches. You can have life that lasts forever. You can have peace in your relationships and freedom from guilt. You can have all of this because of my grace given to you unconditionally, unmerited. Read with me verse 26, chapter 1. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, the saints, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, God came and he reached out to save you, not because you were the best of the best. In fact, look at your church. There are not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful. In fact, the majority of your church really aren't very high on the social ladder, are they? No, no, not at all. 
You didn't warrant the grace of God or merit the grace of God or deserve the grace of God. That's the nature of grace. Grace reaches out to those who are undeserving. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps this morning you need to respond to God for the first time and say, God, I need that grace. I need to be loved and accepted as I am because I'm broken. I need to have the debt of my sin removed because I've offended you with my sin. Please forgive me. God will say yes. I already have forgiven you in Jesus. He will apply the blood of Jesus to your sins. He will apply his resurrection to your life so that you have life that lasts forever and conquers death the moment that you believe. And maybe this morning you need to believe for the first time. When you first believe, you receive the riches of Christ. Or we define grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Notice what he says, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you no place else but in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that in everything, in everything, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And as we'll discover in chapters 12 through 14, what he's referring to is the spirit. The moment you believe your debt of sin is removed, You're given life that lasts forever. You are sealed over with the Holy Spirit and you are indwelt by the Spirit. And that Spirit that indwells you empowers you to live differently. That's all speech and all knowledge. The fullness of the power of the Spirit manifested in spiritual gifts and in the grace of God. Verse 5, that in everything you are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, and now he says, let me say it in a negative way, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And literally, the gift there is a manifestation of grace. You are not lacking in any manifestation of grace. What does that mean in your life? It means that now you can wait eagerly for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is ultimate sanctification. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because you have all of the riches of Jesus Christ, you have hope. You have hope. You can wait eagerly for the return of Jesus Christ, because when he returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, you will be sanctified. You will be like Christ. Flesh will be removed, and you will not struggle any longer. You have hope. You have present power with the indwelling spirit. You have a family. You've been brought into fellowship with God's son and God's people. All of this in Jesus. You read that first paragraph, and the son of God is mentioned in in every verse. Jesus, six times. Christ, eight times. Lord, five times. Every verse. All riches in Christ. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. So you don't have to reach out to the culture around you and try to grab something from the culture around you to make you feel rich, full, or satisfied because all that you need, you have in Christ. How do we apply this? A couple thoughts I want to leave with you. First is this. Do you look more like Christ or the culture surrounding you? I want you to think about that this week. neighbors, do do they know you as belonging to Christ? Is that maybe the first thing that they think about when they think of you? That's that's a Christian 
that one belongs to Christ? Or does it never cross their minds? Your neighbors, your roommates, your friends. Or do you look just so much like them in every way that they can't distinguish you from anyone else? Do you look more like Christ or more like the culture surrounding you? Second, are you willing to move upstream alone? If, if no one else is willing to go against the flow of culture, not your roommates, not your friends, not your family, are you willing to say, no, I, I, I treasure the riches of Christ more than anything else. I belong to Christ. I'm different because I'm in Christ. And my hope is not in this world. My hope is in eternity with Christ. I'll go against the flow of culture, even if I have to go alone. As we close, I want you to take a few moments and and just uh, let your hearts be open to the Spirit. Let the Spirit reach deep and examine what's going on in your heart and your mind. And think about these two questions. You look more like Christ or the culture surrounding you. Are you willing to go against the flow of culture alone? Are you willing to give everything to Jesus? Hey, let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, and the mat's going to come up and close us in prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning, as we just heard, that because of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, we are connected to you. We have a relationship with you, and your spirit is in us. Through the power of that spirit, I pray Uh, you would give us the strength to go against the flow, to recognize that we are often in a world that is hostile to you and to your son and to your values. And I pray you would empower us to be different, to look like Jesus. I pray that we would reflect the love and the kindness and the truthfulness of our Savior to those around us uh, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our places of work or school, and as we go throughout this community. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray be with us as we move forward this week, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of quick opportunities as we close. Uh, As Brian talked about, our desire is to reflect Jesus as we go throughout Uh, our lives, our weeks, our semesters. And one of the best ways to find the strength to do that is in community with others. So a couple of opportunities, college students, uh, we are glad you're here this morning and want to welcome you. Uh, We would love for you to connect with our college ministry, our Grace College ministry. They uh, meet across the street in the building right across Anderson at 11 a.m., and seven at night every week, there is worship, there is teaching uh, directed toward college students. I think next week they're actually starting the book of Song of Solomon. So would love to have you over there. There are also uh, grace groups for students throughout the week, Bible studies and other groups you can connect with uh, to meet other college students who are wanting to walk with the Lord. Uh, We also have groups really for any stage of life, any age. So we want you to get connected with those. Um, You can find more information to get connected out at our ministries desk in the foyer uh, or on our Grace app. If you go to your app store, search Grace Bible Texas, you'll find the app or on our website, grace-bible.org. We have Bible studies. uh, We have Sunday morning groups. We have groups that meet in homes, our home groups. So connect with one of those groups uh, in the upcoming week. This is the perfect time to do it. We're just about to kick them all off in the next week or so. Uh, So thanks for your time. We are glad you were here, and God bless you as you go out this week.